greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I do have a little bit of a scratchy throat, but I did want to get this podcast done before I head to Anaheim, California for the Southern Baptist Convention Annual Meeting. Please do be in prayer for that. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made, a lot of things that need to be discussed, some important votes and things of that nature. And so just be in prayer, especially if you are a Southern Baptist. Well, on this podcast, I'm entitling it Plain Talk About Provisionism. We're going to do a deep dive into the provisionist theology, especially in their understanding of grace, the grace needed for salvation. And I also want to revisit the issue of semi-Pelagianism, because that is something that the provisionists have been uh, accused of. And so we're going to interact with a lot of historical primary sources from both the great Reformed theologians as well as from those who were charged with semi-Pelagianism in the 5th century. And so I want us to listen to this uh, short clip from Leighton Flowers at Soteriology 101. On the YouTube episode, it was, it was titled Provisionism Rightly Represented. You can go back and you can, you can watch that. And so what he does in this very short clip is he does <coughs> give forth the key tenets of provisionist theology and how they differ from reform theology. Now, if you're a, a podcast listener to Understanding Christianity, you know that I've interacted with Leighton for about seven years now. And I consider him a friend, a godly man. Uh, we have major disagreements. And, and again, I hope that this podcast is charitable, is accurate. I've tried to accurately represent the provisionist theology. And so in all things that I do, I want to come across as a compassionate Calvinist. So today we're going to hear statements directly from Leighton Flowers in this YouTube episode, and we're going to interact with him. So let's begin listening to what he has to say. This supernatural act is some effectual, irresistible call upon those unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world. And uh, this unconditional, uh, uh, effectual work uh, certainly causes the elect to believe by changing of their nature, making their nature from dead to alive. And it's an ontological change of nature. Now, no Arminian is arguing for that, obviously, because they're not Calvinists. They're not arguing for this unilateral work of God that effectually causes people to believe uh, on any of those, those forms of grace. But there are different nuances as to what that supernatural work of grace is. Now, the reason I take issue with this is not because I don't understand what he means or what Roger Olson or others mean when they talk about a supernatural work of God or the Spirit upon a man, uh, because I, I think I get what they're intending by that. But my my nitpick here, if you want to call it that, is to say I, I believe Jesus coming and dying on the cross and resurrecting was supernatural, don't you? And it's necessary to be saved. <laughs> it's, it's a prevenient grace. That's what prevenient grace is. Prevenient grace is a grace that comes before that's necessary. Well, I believe it was necessary for Christ to come and to die for us to be saved. I believe the inspiration of the gospel was necessary for us to believe in Jesus, because how will they believe in one whom they've not heard? And how will they uh, hear without a preacher? And how will the preachers go unless they're sent? Romans chapter 10. 
So none of those things can happen without the prevenient workings of God's grace to inspire his word through the apostles, to distribute his word, um, to indwell Christians, the church, the bride, and to inspire and to help and to guide them to go and to proclaim these truths? Is that not supernatural? I think it is. And so, in other words, supernatural is not a sufficient descriptive word to distinguish between our two perspectives because we also believe in a prevenient coming before, aiding of God's grace that's supernatural. We just don't believe that it is a... Um, it is a uh, unmediated, or, or yeah, unmediated direct work of the Holy Spirit, ontologically changing the nature of humanity, making them into something they were not before, uh, changing like like the Calvinists will say, some kind of a giving them a new heart in order for them to be able to confess that they used to have a bad heart. You know, th- this kind of of, of stuff, uh, pre faith regeneration kind of of thing. This ontological change of your very being, of your very nature, in order to to give you back your humanity in a sense, almost to give you back your imago day, to be able to, to, to think and to reason in, a, in a, a reasonable thinking way that actually is meaningful for you to be able to actually respond to God. Now you can respond to any other thing out there. You can respond to demons, you can respond to false teachings, you can respond to even to other true things like your history book or your science book or your algebra. You can respond to all those things in a positive way. But the one thing you were born unable to respond positively to in a meaningful way is the Bible. You just can't without whatever this ontological change of nature is. That to me is just a, a bridge too far. That is really, really, really a high bar for anybody in my estimation to to try to explain or to 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 defend biblically, like Tyler doing, it seems. Now this is very clarifying because Layton argues that provisionists believe in a supernatural work of provenient grace. Oftentimes we would say, uh, I hear others say that they don't believe in any type of grace or, or they don't believe in provenient grace. They just define grace differently. So he makes some arguments here. He argues, number one, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is supernatural. That's supernatural grace. Number two, the inspiration of scriptures is supernatural. And number three, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers who proclaim the gospel is supernatural. Now, these three things, which basically compromise sharing the gospel, he says are supernatural, prevenient, and necessary for a sinner to come to faith in Christ. Now, nevertheless, this is where provisionism departs from both Calvinism and classic Arminianism and and actually even Lutheranism. Leighton argues that they do not believe in a direct work of the Spirit, which in his words, ontologically changes the nature of the sinner to give them a new heart. Now, one of the things that he does here is he does make two false assertions about what we as Reformed theologians believe about regeneration. What are these false claims? Well, first of all, he claims that we believe regeneration changes our ontological nature. Now, that is not a good way to to, to say what we believe. That, that's not necessarily the wording of the Reformed view. And secondly, he says something that we obviously don't believe, that regeneration gives us back what we lost in the fall, namely the imago Dei, the image of God. I don't know of any Calvinist that believes that we somehow, quote-unquote, lost the image of God. 
Now, I'm going to address these later, but this is simply not what Reformed theology teaches. Now, we're going to re- discuss re- what regeneration is biblically. We would not call it a change in the ontological substance of a person. One of the greatest Reformed theologians, Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, says this about regeneration. He says, quote, regeneration is not a change in the substance of human nature. So this is not a Reformed view that the ontological substance of the person changes. In addition, no Reformed person believes that in the fall, humans somehow lost the Imago Dei. We don't get back in regeneration what we lost in the Imago Dei. We don't use that terminology. We don't believe that. Now, here's where he makes some conflations. He conflates saving faith in the person of Christ with mere intellectual assent to the biblical revelation. And he's often, he says this a lot. He says that people can respond positively to demons, to false teaching, to, to algebra equations, to science books. But the one thing we can't respond positively to is the Bible. Now, this is a false dichotomy. He conflates what we would call biblical conversion, i.e. effectual calling, regeneration that leads to repentance and faith, with mere mentally assenting to the facts of biblical revelation. Responding positively to false teaching by believing it is not the same thing as regeneration, which leads to repentance and faith. Now, if you believe as the provisionists do, that there is no internal working of supernatural grace in the soul of a sinner to change their will and desires and ability, then what he says somewhat makes sense. Mere information from the preached word is all you need. Once you get the biblical information, you are now accountable and responsible to do something with that information. What is that? Namely, use your libertarian free will to accept Christ. Now, unsaved people can respond positively to the Bible. They can assent to the facts. They can believe the historical reality of the gospel. Even demons can do this. The demons believe and shudder. So the question is, what's the nature of regeneration? Is regeneration merely accepting the truth of the Bible, or is it a radical, internal, supernatural, monergistic work of the Spirit that implants new life into our hearts so that we freely believe in the person of Christ, not merely assenting to facts about Jesus or believing the truths of the Bible. So if your view of provenient grace is only limited to the external word preached, the gospel appeal, that brings you information to inform you how to be saved and persuasion or conviction, then his view makes sense. But it differs from the reform view. In the reform view, and what we believe is the biblical view, regeneration is an inward, supernatural, irresistible, efficacious work of the Spirit that changes the will, renews the heart, frees the sinner by giving them faith as a gift to believe in the person and work of Christ, not merely to agree with the biblical data or the gospel. Now, let's continue to listen to what he has to say because he does give some more clarification. Is is its own thing. If you're a provisionist, 
you deny prevenient grace. There's no, there's no special work of the Holy Spirit upon the unbeliever to change any part of their nature to make faith possible. Okay, so hopefully you hear what he's saying, and then I understand what he's meaning by that. He's trying to say the same thing Roger Olson says too, okay? So I'm not going to come down hard on, on Tyler here. I'm just, I'm, I'm just nuancing some of the statement that he's saying here because we do believe that the Holy Spirit is working on the heart of man. We do, we believe he does so through the, his chosen means. Now, Leighton does give room for the Holy Spirit to do a work on the human heart, but he limits that only to the external preaching of the word. And he quotes Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about the word of God is living and, and sharper double-edged sword and and that there's the power in the word of God which we would wholeheartedly agree with he talks about the word either going through the ears through preaching or through the eyes through reading the Bible and what he would say is this hearing of the gospel or this reading of the Bible imparts knowledge that you did not have before it gives you new information it gives you a new revelation it brings the, the biblical data of hearing the gospel appeal brings conviction now the reform view agrees with this idea. Yes, the word needs to be preached externally to bring understanding. But we take it a step further and believe that the Spirit must also do a work of internal illumination, regeneration, uh, sovereign changing, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to talk a lot about this as we go on. We make the distinction between the efficient cause of regeneration and the instrumental cause and i'm going to go into detail about that but let me just introduce it now we'll get to it later but let me just let me just define terms because this is a clear key teaching in reformed theology that the provisions do not hold to what is the instrumental cause in our conversion or our regeneration the instrumental cause is the word of god the word of god must be preached the word of god must be proclaimed it's the instrument that god uses to bring about our conversion but we also believe in the efficient cause what is the efficient cause well it's the holy spirit the holy spirit doing an internal work of grace now we'll discuss this later but before we do that we actually need to explain effectual calling first and then explain regeneration and, and explain how these two things work together the word and the spirit and so needless to say Leighton argues that the gospel appeal, the external word, is the only and sufficient cause of enabling a positive response of faith. Now, in this, he assumes a libertarian free will, and he denies total inability. Now, this is where many accuse provisionism of being semi-Pelagian in the historic sense of the word. And we're going to get to that. We're going to ask the question as we go through this, is provisionism semi-Pelagianism in the historical sense of the term. Now, the Reformed view, the classical Arminian view, the Lutheran view according to the Book of Concord, all major Protestant, I'm, I'm taking Roman Catholic out of this because they have their own view, but, but all Protestant historical evangelical views believe in some type of prevenient grace and that prevenient grace is inward inward supernatural on the soul 
that does work in conjunction with the external preaching of the word. Now, provisionism digresses from this, differs from this. They see no need for this. Now, we'll discuss it here in a moment, but the main reason that they deny this is because they do not believe in any type of moral or spiritual inability from birth that renders a person bondage in the bondage of the will. Now, they're going to affirm that, yes, we're corrupted by sin. We're, we're tainted by sin. But yet, at the same time, there's nothing inherent in the fallen nature that prevents us from believing in Christ if we receive the gospel appeal externally to our ears. This is one of the reasons we spend so much time talking about, for example, um, Hebrews chapter 4, because it really does kind of illustrate what we're talking about here. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword even penetrating as far as division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So what is the word of God, the spoken true word of God able to do? It's able to judge the intentions of something inwardly. It's able to break through, not bones and marrow, like a sword, an external weapon would do. An external weapon can have an internal impact, right? Well, the word of God's the same way. It goes through our ears if it's preached, or through our eyes if it's read, but it can have an internal impact. It can bring conviction to us. It can bring knowledge and revelation and understanding that we did not have before. And it, therefore, it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things open and laid bare the eyes of him, we must give it an answer. And so we can say that, yes, that's, that is a supernatural work of God upon the heart through the means that he has chosen, i.e. through the word the Word of God, the proclaimed truth, the inspired truth of who God is and what he has accomplished. Now, you may want to argue that the, the proclaimed truth of God's Word isn't special enough or isn't supernatural enough, but you can't say that it's not at all special or at all supernatural because that's just demonstrably untrue. It is special and it is supernatural by definition. And therefore, that's why these, these kinds of statements can get so uh, garbled. And it seems like hair splitting, especially among those who are not the theology geeks that get into the details of this. But this is why it's so important to understand these things, is that you can't ignore the means by which the Holy Spirit is chosen to, to work, which is one of the reasons we use that illustration so often about the car, the boat, and the helicopter saving the guy from drowning and him saying, no, I don't want any of those things. God's going to save me. He dies, gets to heaven, says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent you a car, a boat, and helicopter. God works through human means. And if God works through the preacher proclaiming the inspired word of God, that is special. And yes, it was brought by supernatural means, whether you want to call it that or not. I think it does. It is, by my definition, supernatural and special. The question is, is it sufficient? Is hearing the word, the truth of God's word, sufficient for the person who hears it, who is created in the Imago Dei with a conscience given to him by God, a conscience that's able now to know right from wrong, according to Romans 2, to be able to judge that which is right or wrong, and, and testify within their conscience that God has written on their hearts whether what they're saying is true or not, to accept it or to suppress it, as the Bible says we're responsible for, that the very words of God, the very words of Christ, will judge us on the final day from John 12, 48. 
So this is a very clear statement about the sufficiency of the gospel appeal alone, externally preached, to enable a positive response. Now you can go back and, and watch the entire YouTube clip, but his, his YouTube episode is called Provisionism Rightly Represented. And this is his positive explanation of their view. So I want to interact with Provisionism Rightly Represented by doing an in-depth study of two related doctrines in Reformed theology, effectual calling and regeneration. And we're also going to ask the question, is provisionism indeed semi-Pelagianism? Now, one of the issues with provisionism is they're not confessional. They do not hold to a historic confession of faith that has been adopted by a large group of Protestant evangelicals over a long period of time. They may hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, 1963, the, the statement on traditional Southern Baptist theology that came out in 2012. But as a Reformed Baptist, I hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Some of you that listen may be Presbyterian who hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And just to let you know, the Second London Baptist Confession is pretty close in wording to the Westminster Confession. Now, there's some differences, and we'll talk about that, but let's just look at chapter 10, because in chapter 10 of the 1689, we have a definition of effectual calling and regeneration. Here's what it says in paragraph 1. In God's appointed and acceptable time, he's pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. This provides some definitions or aspects of effectual calling in regeneration and what it looks like. So the confession says, first, God enlightens our minds, or God opens our eyes. And Paul is giving his testimony in Acts 26, 17 through 18. God, or Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said, I want you to, I'm delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, go preach to the Gentiles so that their eyes can be opened. Well, how does Paul open eyes? Can Paul open eyes as a mere human? No. We find out in his theology, recorded for us in 2 Corinthians, how God opens eyes through the preaching of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 in their case, talking about the unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So unbelievers are blinded by Satan from seeing the glory of Christ. So what does Paul do? Verse 5, for what we proclaim or what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So Paul has to preach externally the word of the gospel so that sinners who are blinded can hear it through their ears. But notice the next step in verse 6. For God, 
who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's an internal sovereign working of God in the heart of a lost person that's equated to the day of creation when God said, let there be light. So that's how God opens eyes, by reaching down deep into the heart of a blind person and doing a supernatural, supernatural work of grace. And second, it says, God replaces our dead, stony hearts. Replaces a heart of stone. We get this from Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will do this supernatural heart transplant deep within the heart of a person who has a heart of stone, a metaphor for a, a dead, unresponsive, wicked heart. God has to do this supernatural heart transplant deep within the soul of a lost person. God does it. We don't do this ourselves. We don't even call out to have God do this. God sovereignly does this upon us. We see this in action in Acts 16, 14. Paul goes down to the river in Philippi where a bunch of ladies are praying and worshiping God. They're, they're Jewish proselytes. They're not Christians. Uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice Paul was preaching externally the word of God. She was listening to what Paul was saying but that was not enough. The Lord had to open her heart to receive the message. So yes, there's the external preaching of the gospel, but yet there's an inward work where God takes out a heart of stone. God opens eyes. God does a sovereign work of grace. Third, the confession says that God renews our will. Oftentimes it's talking about the circumcision of the heart. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your, of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Notice that there's an inability there to love God, to serve God with all of our hearts. There, there, there's an inability and a lack of desire to do that until the Lord does this inner working of grace. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has to change our wills so that we will, number one, come to faith in Christ, and also, even in our sanctification, God has to work in us to will according to his good pleasure. Fourth, God effectually draws us to Christ. Now this comes, obviously, from John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I have a lot of podcasts on John chapter 6, especially related to the drawing, so you can go back and listen to those. I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this, but that's a key verse. And then there's the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the calling here in this golden chain is effectual. Because it, it results from being predestined. Only those who are predestined are called effectually. And when you're called effectually, what do you do? You place your faith in Christ. And what happens when you place your faith in Christ? The scripture says there the next, the next chain in the link is you're justified. 
So only those who have been effectually called will believe and be justified because they have been predestined to do so. And fifth, and this is very important, the confession says this work of God is not coercive, but makes us freely and willing to come in faith. God does not somehow violate our will, but we have an inability to come and we have a lack of desire to come. We don't want to come freely and we cannot come freely. So God has to renew our will and overcome that resistance so that we do that freely. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. If the, if the Father draws you to Jesus and you've been elected, chosen before the foundation of the world, you will come most freely. Your will will be liberated so that you want to come. Robert Shaw in his exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith, has this nice little quote. He says that the obstinacy or stubbornness of our will is overcome, its perversion taken away, and the whole soul powerfully yet sweetly is attracted to the Savior. One of the things that we like to talk about in Reformed theology is, yes, this effectual call is powerful, it's irresistible, it's unconquerable, but yet it's sweet. It's comforting in that the Lord makes us freely want to come. We're not coming kicking and screaming against our will because we don't want to. In our deadness, we didn't want to and we could not. So God sovereignly overcomes that inability by giving us the desire to come to Christ. Christ is sweet to us. Christ is attractive to us, whereas before he wasn't because our eyes were blinded. Now, paragraph 2 of the 1689 I'm not going to read it, but I'll just paraphrase it. That this effectual calling is, is a result of the free and special grace upon God's elect. In other words, it's not merited. It's not something we deserve. It's not something God is obligated to do. And when this grace comes, it makes us spiritually alive. Ephesians 2, 4-7, through But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We were spiritually dead. God made us alive. God did this monergistic work in us, taking us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's a grace that brings us alive. And it's a grace that's not deserved. It's a grace that God has given to us. And, and actually, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This, again, ties our calling to election. God chose us before the foundations of the world to be saved, and in time, he called us effectually to himself according to his purpose and grace. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, a sovereign work of the Lord. He, through the Holy Spirit, washes us, regenerates us. Not because of anything that we did, anything that we can earn. God is not obligated to do it. It's simply out of his sheer goodness and mercy 
alone. Now, I do want to read paragraph four because it does relate to the previous podcast I did on the insufficiency of general revelation to lead to saving faith in Christ. You can go back and, and listen to that most recent podcast where I deal with the provisionists uh, with Leighton Flowers and the Brodown uh, guys where they do say that general revelation, general revelation is sufficient. Well, here's a statement in paragraph four of the Second London Baptist Confession in, in this chapter. Quote, those who were not elected will not and cannot truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved because they are not effectually drawn by the Father. They may even be called by the ministry of the word and may receive some ordinary working of the spirit without being saved. Much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. This is kind of who the effectual call does not come to. It does not come to the elect. It does not come to those whom the Father has not chosen. They may hear the preaching of the gospel. They may hear the external word preached. They may even have some working of the, of the Holy Spirit and the fact that they are around other believers. They are in a worship service where the Spirit is moving. But that's not enough. Again, provisionism limits it to that. The preaching of the word. The ordinary working of the Spirit. That's the, that's the sufficient grace needed to enable a response. The Reformed, 1689, and also the Westminster says no. And then also, you cannot be saved by diligently living up to the light of nature that you've been given. And it's interesting, there's a statement in the Westminster that's, that's been omitted from the 1689. The, the Westminster says that to believe that, that you can be saved according to the light of nature is detestable and pernicious. It's a detestable and pernicious doctrine. For some reason, the, the, the 1689 took that out. So what is effectual calling? We've looked at a lot of definitions here based upon the, 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 the 1689. Let's just give me a, a few more teachings on this. Um, it's a sovereign summons limited to the elect. A sovereign summons. First uh, Peter 2, 8 and 9. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are those who are destined to disobey God's word because they're the reprobate, they're not elect. But we who are chosen by God's grace, God sovereignly called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Calvin, in his Romans commentary, John Calvin says this, and this is, I'm going to give you quotes from the, the, the magisterial reformers, especially dealing with Calvin, and then later on Francis Turretin, and I'm not going to give you John MacArthur or John Piper or, or some of these modern people that oftentimes RC, I mean, um, oftentimes Leighton Flowers deals with, the popular Calvinists. I'm going to give you the root Calvinists, the, the foundational Calvinists, the, 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 the ones that come uh, from the historical understanding. And so Calvin in his Romans commentary says this, quote, there is no benefit from the word except when God shines in us by the light of the Spirit, and thus the inward calling, which alone is efficacious and peculiar to the elect, 
is distinguished from the outward voice of men. That's a succinct statement by Calvin who delineates the reform view of the external call and the internal effectual call. The outward call, merely the gospel appeal when preached, there's no benefit from it unless God does an internal working of the Spirit and that's limited only to the elect. Now, the canons of Dort, under headings 3 and 4, Article 12, uh, set forth a very good definition of effectual calling and regeneration and, and how it contrasts differently, so differently, from provisionism. So we've looked at the 1689, which the Westminster is pretty much word for word. We're gonna, we've looked at Calvin. We're going to continue to look at Calvin. But let's look at the canons of Dort. Uh, obviously, I did a podcast a couple of years ago um, on the 500th anniversary of the Synod of, of Dort. But let's just read Article 12 under headings 3 and 4. This is, their, this is a great definition of regeneration. And this is that regeneration so highly extolled in Scripture, that renewal, new creation, resurrection from the dead, making alive, which God works in us without our aid. Okay, that, that's, that's basically a great definition of regeneration. But I want you to notice the next statement and how this flies in the face from provisionist theology. Here's the next statement. But this is in no way affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion, or such a mode of operation that after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful, at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the offer of this work declares, so that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated, and do actually believe, whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active, Wherefore also man is rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. Wonderful, powerful statement there. I love it. Canons of Dort. It's not the effectual, or it's not the eternal, excuse me. It is not the external preaching of the gospel that brings about anything. There has to be a supernatural, powerful work in the heart of a person where the will is renewed and the person is actually made alive and they do come to faith in Christ because they're granted the gift of faith. This understanding is what provisionism denies. Again, they believe that the mere external preaching of the word or moral persuasion is sufficient to enable a positive response. And again, I want to talk about the sweetness of the call because I like the way that the, the Canons of Dort says that. It's, it's delightful, astonishing, mysterious, ineffable. It talks about <laughs> the fact that we don't really quite understand this regeneration, but it's a wonderful, sweet thing that God does in our hearts. Uh, Francis Turretin writes this, quote, It is powerful that it may not be frustrated, 
sweet that it may not be forced. Its power is supreme and unconquerable that the corruption of nature may be conquered, yet still it is friendly and agreeable. The Reformed view says that the grace is irresistible that God brings to the elect. It's supernatural, it's efficacious, it's powerful, but it's also sweet and agreeable and friendly. So that's the effectual calling. Now, regeneration is associated very intricately with the effectual call, but in, in, in our theology, we make a distinction between the effectual call and regeneration. So let me give you some definitions of regeneration. Again, Louis Burkhoff, in his wonderful systematic theology, defines it this way, quote, Regeneration is the act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. New life is implanted into us. We are spiritually made alive. Now he also shows the connection between effectual calling and regeneration. So he says, logically, the external call in the preaching of the word generally precedes or coincides with the operation of the Holy Spirit by which the new life is produced in the soul of man. Then, by a creative word, God generates the new life, changing the inner disposition of the soul, illuminating the mind, rousing the feelings, and renewing the will. So, logically or theologically, the external call comes before regeneration. It's a call, it's a summons, it's a powerful working that goes to the heart of the elect. And then regeneration is actually the work of the Holy Spirit to actually change the will, to liberate the will. To, to bring a person from spiritual death to spiritual life, to cause them to be born again. John Murray, in his great book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this, quote, God's call, since it is effectual, carries with it the operative grace whereby the person called is enabled to answer the call and embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. God's grace reaches down to the lowest depths of our need and meets all the demands of the moral and spiritual impossibility which resides in our depravity and inability. And that grace is the grace of regeneration. It's a wonderful definition from John Murray. Herman Bovink, the great Dutch theologian, in his Reformed Dogmatics, writes this, quote, God's Spirit Himself directly enters the human heart and with infallible certainty brings about regeneration without it in any way dependent on the human will. That's a succinct definition. The Spirit works directly on the human heart, brings about regeneration without any cooperation, without any synergism. It is a monergistic work of the Spirit on the dead soul of a sinner. John 1, 12-13, in the prologue of John's Gospel, John writes, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, or will of man, but of God. So I don't have time to go into the grammar of this passage of Scripture, but when you're born of God spiritually, you will, as a result of that, believe in Christ's name. Again, listen to how Calvin comments on this verse. Calvin says, quote, Faith does not proceed from ourselves, 
but is the fruit of spiritual regeneration. For John affirms that no man can believe unless he's born of God. And therefore, faith is a heavenly gift. It also follows that faith is not bare or cold knowledge, since no man can believe who has not been renewed by the Spirit of God. The illumination of our minds by the Holy Spirit belongs to our renewal, and thus faith flows from regeneration as its source. We're born of God first. We are regenerated first, and from that regeneration, the outflowing of that is our free faith response. Herman Ritterboss also comments on this passage in John in his commentary. Quote, the idea that faith as a human choice should precede the new birth or come before the new birth, and therefore that in some sense a person should have this rebirth of God at his or her disposal seems absurd. He flat out says it's absurd to think that you have faith first and then as a result of that faith, you're born again. No, the fact that you have faith proceeds from that regeneration. We also know John 3, you must be born again. Now, Jesus is not giving Nicodemus a command that he can accomplish, saying this is something you can do. God has to do that. The, the Spirit has to blow in the life of a person to bring about that new birth. Again, we talked about that Ephesians 2 passage where God has to make us spiritually alive. You must be born again. The Spirit must blow in you. It's interesting, in Peter's Peter's epistle, his first epistle, he he begins with a Trinitarian understanding of our salvation. And then he goes into the issue of our being born again, regeneration. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, okay, elect exiles, chosen, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, in obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, the Father chose you, Jesus saved you by his blood, and the Spirit called you and sanctified you. Now, blessed... Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again. We don't cause our new birth. The Lord does it. So that is effectual calling and regeneration. So let's ask the question, because the provisionists do not understand these things the way we do. So let's ask the question, is provisionism semi-Pelagianism? I've changed my tune on this. Earlier in some podcasts, I was trying to be charitable. I was trying to say, you know, don't call provisionist semi-Pelagianism. They just basically have a different view of grace. They're kind of their own animal. They're not Arminian. They're not Calvinist. They're not Lutheran. They've just kind of changed the definition of grace to be only limited to the mere outward preaching of the gospel which enables a person who is not spiritually dead to use their libertarian free will to respond. Uh, Now, again, the provisionist view, there is no need for an internal, mystical, supernatural work of the Spirit on the heart, mind, will, to cause them to be born again, to grant repentance and faith, to take them out of the bondage of the will. So let's ask the question, is provisionism semi-Pelagian. Now, 
I've done a deep dive into some primary sources of the semi-Pelagians of the 400s. And I've come to the conclusion in reading in their source documents, reading what they say with their own mouths, that provisionism is pretty much semi-Pelagianism in the historical sense of the word. Now, they may deny it. They may say, you're using the boogeyman fallacy. But let me just be historical here. Some of you like when I go a deep, do a deep dive in, into church history. Historically, if you read the statements by semi-Pelagians and their opponents, they say pretty much the same thing that Leighton Flowers and others say about the nature of grace. Now let's talk about the history of semi-Pelagianism. In the 5th century, the 400s, during the time of Augustine and right after the time of Augustine, there were some men that were attributed to the rise of semi-Pelagianism. Now, this was located in the south of France, in the, the southern area of Provence, also in the city of Marseille. So southern France, there were some monks and some pastors and, and leaders. Uh, the first one that is identified with the semi-Pelagian movement is, is a man named John Cassian. He was a monk, lived in a monastery in Marseille, France. Uh, he was a contemporary of Augustine. He wrote a book or a work called Conference 13. Conference 13, where he puts forth his views on the nature of grace and free will. Now, for the most part, John Cassian did agree with a lot of Augustine's teaching. But Cassian does deny total inability. Same thing the provisionists do. He believes we're fallen and inclined to evil, but not spiritually dead. Same thing as provisionism. Now, St. Prosper of Aquitaine, St. <laughs> Prosper of Aquitaine was, was, was basically a, a cage stage Calvinist who basically came to the, the defense of Augustine. He was kind of a rabid defender of Augustine. And as, as a matter of fact, he lived in Marseille during the time of John Cassian. So he came across John Cassian's views and, and the views of the people that followed John Cassian, and he was really bothered by it. And so he began to write some very polemical, very harsh and strong statements, condemning. Uh, he kind of came out guns blazing. So, so Prosper of Aquitaine is kind of noted with being what we would call today a, a cage-stage Calvinist, a rabid uh, Calvinist that wants to defend at all costs the doctrines of grace. And he wrote a poem, and it was called in Latin, Carmen de Ingratis, Carmen de Ingratis, or the poem about the ungrateful. So he gave a name to John Cassian and these quote-unquote semi-Pelagians. He called them the ungratefuls. And this is what he, he, he summarized the semi-Pelagian view in this poem. Again, this is Prosper's summary of what they were teaching in Marseille during this time. And you can argue and say that's not what the semi-Pelagians taught, but what we have in historical documents is Prosper interacting with their viewpoint. So Prosper says this, quote, Grace calls and invites all men, and overlooking no one, desires to bring salvation to all and absolve the entire world of sin. You believe, however, that every man obeys the voice of his own free will and through the use of his own judgment and decisions reaches out toward the light that is offered, a light that withdraws itself from no one, 
but helps those who desire what is good and enlightens those who so desire. That is from his Carmen de Ingratis, his poem on the ungrateful. That's a description of provisionism to a T. What is Prosper saying the semi-Pelagians believed? Well, sinners have libertarian free will. And when the light of the gospel is offered, when the gospel pill comes, you have the ability to understand it. You can make the decision to trust in Christ. It's a helping grace. It's an assisting grace. It's an enabling grace. If you desire when you hear the gospel preached, that's the grace needed for you to be able to use your libertarian free will to come to Christ. It's just the mere external preaching. When When the light and the gospel is given to you, You've got the light of the gospel. Now, through your libertarian free will, you can make the free will choice with the help of that information you didn't have before to come to faith in Christ. Again, there is no internal work of the Spirit. And in this poem, Prosper reaffirms the monergistic work of grace directly in the soul of a sinner that that was from Augustine's teaching. He says this in this poem, grace is begotten by the action of God working alone in the soul, reforming the mind. Very clear statement. So he's basically saying, you semi-Pelagians don't believe this. You don't believe that God directly works in the soul, reforming the mind. It's a monergistic work. It's an internal work. You guys just limit it to the mere external preaching of the gospel. When the light of the gospel comes, you have the libertarian free will. The help has come to you. In the gospel appeal, you can choose to make a free will decision. Now, Prosper wrote a huge work defending Augustine. And again, it's very polemical. But there is a section where he deals directly with John Cassian. And it's called quote, on grace and free will against Cassian the lecturer. Okay, so I'm going to Prosper's actual wording here where he lambasts Cassian's viewpoints. He's he's interacting with what Cassian was teaching in Marseille at that time. So Prosper quotes from John 6.44 that we looked at earlier, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And, And this is what Prosper of Aquitaine writes about John Cassian's views. Quote, our Lord would not have said this if we were allowed to believe that someone can be converted without a divine illumination, or if man's will could of itself strive after God without God. God it is who draws to his son those whom he calls. He does not compel them by force against their will, but he makes them willing from willing, and by all sorts of ways overcomes the resistance of their unbelief. When God births this faith in their hearts, they trust in him. So he's commenting on John 6, 44 and saying, John Cassian, you and, you and your followers are not believing that God does this internal drawing, this effectual drawing directly on the soul of a sinner. He basically accuses Cassian of denying the inward effectual call, that God changes the will of man. Now, he continues to interact with Cassian's view in this work, this polemical work. He says, quote, look, Although you here do say that the help of God is necessary for salvation, yet you attribute to the unaided freedom of their wills without the grace of God the initiative of what is good and the desire of virtue. Okay, this is very important. Prosper says of Cassian's view, 
we need help. We know you don't believe you can save yourself. We have to have salvation. We have to have help. What is that help? That helps the gospel appeal. When the gospel appeal comes to you, that's the help needed. You have unaided freedom of will. You have libertarian free will. So you can desire to obey Christ unaided internally. He says, without the grace of God as the initiative. So you, John Cassian, believe that there is grace needed. There's help needed. But it's merely the external appeal of the gospel. There's no need for an internal work of God on the soul. You have libertarian free will. You have the assisting grace. You have the gospel appeal. Make the choice. Again, this is what provisionism believes. So John Cassian in Marseille was one of the chief proponents of semi-Pelagian thought and Prosper of Aquitaine, one of Augustine's students, a rabid cage-stage Calvinist, writes polemically against him. But there's another one. There's another man in southern France, down in the Provence area. His name was Faustus of Ries. Faustus of Ries. And he wrote The Grace of God and Free Will. And it, it was shortened in Latin. It, it, it was known as De Gratia, The Grace. And this was written in 474 AD. And in this, he sets forth a positive case of semi-Pelagianism. So this is not Prosper of Aquitaine basically going on a tirade against John Cassian. This is Faustus of Ries laying forth what he believes. And so in De Gratia, chapter 1, verse 17, he says this, quote, What does it mean to, quote, attract, if not to preach, to excite people with the encouragement that comes to us from the scriptures, to deter with threats, to propose desirable things, to instill fear, to promise judgment and future rewards. In this section, he's basically saying that the drawing or the attracting is merely the preaching of the external word. This is how provisionists define the drawing of God. It's that external preaching of the word. We hear the word, comes to our ears, it gives us what we need to be attracted to Jesus. Now, commenting on his work, so, so some scholars are dealing with the work of Faustus. One scholar writes this, quote, We find here the thought familiar to semi-Pelagians, fallen man, unable to lift himself up, but capable, without the need for inner grace, of giving himself faith in the divine deliverer and of asking for his help. That's provisionism. Fallen man can't lift himself up, but he doesn't necessarily need an inner work of grace. He can ask for help because he needs salvation, but he doesn't need the inner work of grace. You'll often hear Leighton Flowers say something like this, just because you're in bondage to sin doesn't mean you can't cry out and, and ask for help to be released from bondage of sin. A sinner can ask God to help them out of their sin and save them. You know, they're, they're not, the provisionists are not going to say man is not sinful. They, they, they affirm man is sinful. Man can't save himself. Man needs help. Man needs grace. Man needs provenient grace. Man needs help. Man needs a gospel appeal. And when that gospel appeal comes, that's the help. You have libertarian free will to use that help to believe. There is no need for inner grace. Only the gospel appeal or the external word preached. 
I want to introduce you to a Roman Catholic historian named Guido Stucco. And that's a weird name, Guido Stucco. Um, but he's a Roman Catholic historian. He's written extensively, probably the, most, uh, the, the modern scholar who's written very extensively on semi-Pelagianism in the early church. And um, he's an expert in it. I, I mean, his, his tome, his book is fairly thick, and he deals with a lot of the, uh, the primary sources. And he says this, quote, about the semi-Pelagians. They believed in these types of grace. A, the doctrine and preaching of the gospel which reaches us from the outside, arousing our curiosity and interest and stimulating our wills. And B, remnants of the original integrity of Adam and Eve enjoyed prior to the fall or the possibility of natural goodness. He summarizes the grace of what the Pelagians, or the, I'm sorry, the semi-Pelagians believed. Semi-Pelagians. And these types of grace is what the provisionists affirm wholeheartedly. Number one, the external gospel appeal is necessary to give us knowledge, stimulate our wills to respond. The external preaching of the gospel, that's the grace. Number two, sinners aren't totally depraved in Adam, but we have some remnants of goodness. We still retain libertarian free will. We're not dead, but we're sick. We're not born morally unable to come to Christ, but we have an inclination towards evil with the possibility, though slim, that we could somehow attain a level of sinlessness. And Guido Stucco also says this, quote, semi-Pelagians perceived grace as grace in general, outside of us, engulfing creation. Such grace is necessary to create the backgrounds, milieu, and the inspiration and the general condition or the possibility to believe. An outside grace. It creates the conditions or the possibility for us to believe. This is exactly what Leighton said in his clip. The background, grace of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's grace. The word of God, that's grace. The general conditions have been set up with the gospel appeal through the Holy Spirit and dwelt messengers to bring the external grace that enables a sinner to positively respond. Again, there's no need for inward grace. And then he summarizes the semi-Pelagian view by saying this, quote, Grace works in the calling, in the exhorting, but not in making one do or believe something. Grace is an external influence. Again, that's provisionism. It's an external influence. It's the mirror preaching of the gospel, the outward gospel appeal. There's no need for an internal sovereign work of grace by the Holy Spirit on the soul of a sinner who is in the bondage of the will. Again, this is provisionism to a T. Now, those are some primary sources from those in the semi-Pelagian viewpoint in the 400s, but Reformed scholar B.B. Warfield, in his studies of Augustine and the Pelagian controversy, does give the history of Cassian and these semi-Pelagians in southern France. And this is what he writes about their view, the semi-Pelagian. This is from B.B. Warfield. Quote, They, the semi-Pelagians, taught that all men are sinners, and they derive their sin from Adam, that they can by no means save themselves, but need God's assisting grace, and that this grace is gratuitous in the sense that men cannot really deserve it, and yet that it is not irresistible, nor given always without the occasion of its gift having been determined by men's attitude toward God, so that though not given on account of the merits of men, 
it is given according to those merits, actual or foreseen. Now, what he's saying is, is that the semi-Pelagians are different than the Pelagians in the fact that they, the semi-Pelagians did believe that we're sinners, that we have sin from Adam, we can't save ourselves, we're not blank sa- slates, we need assisting grace. Um, but the issue that he says is that for the semi-Pelagian view, the grace is not irresistible. And he goes on to say this, B.B. Warfield, quote, No doubt they spoke constantly of grace, but they meant by this primal endowment of man with free will and the subsequent aid given him in order to its proper use by the revelation of the law and the teaching of the gospel, and above all, by the forgiveness of past sins in Christ and by Christ's holy example. Anything further than this external help, they utterly denied. Okay, there is B.B. Warfield giving his commentary on the semi-Pelagian viewpoint, and he basically says the same thing as provisionism. They have this grace. The semi-Pelagians talked about grace. It was a spiritual grace. But what the grace was, was you have libertarian free will to respond positively to the revelation of the law and the teaching of the gospel. That external grace was all that was needed. There was no other help. There was no other internal grace. There was no other monergistic work of the Spirit directly on the soul. Okay, let's look at a a modern scholar, Nick Needham. Nick Needham has written a four-volume set of modern-day church history, kind of for lay people. It's called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. This is from Volume 1, The Age of the Early Church Fathers. And he gives a definition of semi-Pelagianism. Okay, so this is from Nick Needham's book. Quote, Semi-Pelagians insisted that although a sinner could not save himself, he could at least cry out to God for saving grace. Just as a sick person might not be able to heal himself, but he could at least take himself to the doctor. Does this not sound like the things that Leighton Flowers says a lot of times? A sinner can cry out for help. And he often uses the illustration much like an addict can cry out and admit that he's an addict and check himself into the rehab to get help. Now, the the semi-Pelagians and the provisionists are clear to say we're not saved by works, but by grace. But again, the grace is just the mere external preaching of the word that helps you make a libertarian free will decision to ask for help. Now, the second council or the second synod of Orange in 529 AD officially condemned semi-Pelagianism. And it's helpful to see what they actually condemned because in their condemnations, they summarize the teachings. So in order for you to meet and have a council and have people gather to condemn something, it has to be something that's disseminated that a lot of people are believing or is brewing or or, or is out there. Now you can say, well, it's not fair that they condemn semi-Pelagianism and it's just an ecumenical council. Well, regardless of, of, of the, that, we have the canons of the Second Council of Orange condemning what the semi-Pelagians in the historical time frame of the 400s up into the 500s believed. And so in Canon 7, in Canon 7 of their condemnations in the Second Council of Orange, let me read, to the, read this to you. Quote, If anyone declares that through the power inherent In human nature, it is possible to make any right opinion or make any right choice which relates to the salvation of eternal life or to assent to the preaching of the gospel through our natural powers without 
the illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who makes all men gladly assent to and believe in the truth, he's led astray by a heretical spirit and does not understand the voice of God. Okay, this is provision of theology. There is inherent power or libertarian free will in the fallen sinner in which he is able to call out for help or believe in Jesus through the preaching of the external gospel appeal. What do the provisionists deny? Any internal illumination or work of the Spirit to make sinners gladly and willingly come to the truth. So that's the second council of orange condemnation of what the Pelagian, semi-Pelagians taught. So semi-Pelagianism and provisionism are very close in their theology. Let's just go to one last source. This is the Encyclopedia Britannica. Again, a reputable encyclopedia. They're going to give the summary of the historical views of what they interpret based upon source material and how an Encyclopedia Britannica does this of semi-Pelagianism. So the entry under semi-Pelagianism in the Encyclopedia Britannica says this, quote, According to this view, semi-Pelagianism, an individual by unaided will could desire to accept the gospel of salvation but could not be actually converted without divine help. In later semi-Pelagianism, divine help was conceived not as an internal empowering, graciously infused by God into a person, but as purely external preaching or the biblical communication of the gospel of the divine promises and of the divine threats. That definition succinctly represents the provisionist view concerning the nature of grace. Again, the issue is not whether the grace is sufficient or prevenient. The issue is the nature or the definition of or what are you calling grace. Is the grace needed for salvation only an external gospel appeal preached to the ears where a person hears and then is enabled by the hearing to use their libertarian free will to believe? Or in the Reformed view, the Augustinian view, is grace an inward empowering by the Holy Spirit that actually changes the mind of the heart, and the will. What makes provisionism so different from the other views, again, is that it does not see any need for an internal, direct work of the Spirit on the fallen sinner to overcome any type of spiritual deadness or moral inability. Again, since they deny any type of moral or spiritual inability inherited from birth, this type of inward grace, in their view, is pretty much unnecessary. There doesn't need to be any inward grace to overcome spiritual deadness because we deny spiritual deadness. So it makes sense in their view, if you deny total inability, it logically makes sense that the only necessary and sufficient grace is the word or gospel preached to a fallen sinner who still is fallen still inclined to sin, but still has libertarian free will to understand that message and then to cry out for help and receive the gift of salvation as a free gift. Now, this is my personal opinion. I wish Leighton and his camp would just come out and say, yes, we are historically semi-Pelagians according to what the source material in church history says. 
And I know he calls it a boogeyman fallacy. I know oftentimes he says it doesn't really matter what ecumenical councils say or, or how the council's condemned uh, because there's a lot of things that semi-Pelagians teach that you would condemn like infant baptism and things like that. And yes, semi-Pelagianism was condemned by the Second Council of Orange, but for Leighton, who cares? I mean, he can just say, okay, it was condemned in history, but we own the title because their theology is our theology. Or if you don't want to throw around the title of semi-Pelagianism, just admit that when asked, if somebody asks a provisionist, you guys are semi-Pelagian, just say, yeah, you know what? When you read the source materials of the history of the time of Augustine in the 400s and the 500s with John Cassian and these guys in southern France, our theology is pretty much in line with what they taught. And we don't have a problem with it. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. We believe they were right, and we're going to own it. Now, what the provisionist view does not make, and I said I would come back to this, is the distinction between the efficient and the instrumental cause of regeneration. So provisionism and semi-Pelagianism only see the external word preached, the instrumental cause, and does not see any need for the spirit to do an internal work that is ultimately the efficient cause of the new birth and the granting of saving faith. The efficient and instrumental cause of regeneration. The instrumental cause, the word. The efficient cause, the Holy Spirit. Now you see this in First Thess- or I'm sorry, in Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. We should always give thanks to God, to you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you see both in this passage of Scripture. What's the instrumental cause? You were called through our gospel. The external gospel appeal came to you. The word came to you. But what's the efficient cause in that passage of Scripture? Through sanctification by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had to do an internal work of sanctification to grant you the faith to believe. This came through the instrumental cause of the word preached, but efficiently through the Holy Spirit. And what's the foundation for all of this? Why did this happen to you? Why was it effective for you? Because you were chosen from the beginning. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. We see this in James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, what's the instrumental cause? By the word of truth. The word of truth was preached. What's the efficient cause? God, by his own will, brought us forth. God sovereignly, through his spirit, caused us to be born again. Okay, you see this in 1 Peter 1.23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, the instrumental cause is through the living and abiding word of God, the word of God preached externally. But the efficient cause is the Holy Spirit who worked in us to cause us to be born again. So the Reformed view holds that there must be an external preaching of the word of God so that sinners can hear the gospel, understand the gospel. Yet this alone is not sufficient. This is where provisionism and semi-Pelagianism stop. We take it a step further and says, in conjunction with the external word, the Holy Spirit must do an internal supernatural work on the dead heart, the dead mind, the bondage of the will, 
to overcome that moral and spiritual inability and regenerate a person and make them alive. Again, the provisionists deny this secondary work, just like the semi-Pelagians. They deny a secondary work of the Spirit. And provisionists will also often label it extra grace. Why does God need to bring more grace than the grace he's already provided in the gospel appeal? Again, their definition of grace is the gospel appeal. Holy Spirit-inspired messengers, the word of God, that's supernatural grace. Why does God have to bring more grace? That grace is enough. The external gospel appeal is the sufficient grace and is the only thing needed to enable a person to use his or her libertarian free will to accept Christ. Now, what do our Reformed theologians say about the conjunction between the external word preached and the internal working of the Holy Spirit? In other words, what do, what do our Reformers, what do our theologians say about the instrumental cause of regeneration and the efficient cause of regeneration? Well, let's go to Calvin. In the Institutes, Institutes of the Christian Religion, gives this great definition, quote, should anyone wish a clearer reply, let him take the following. God works in his elect in two ways, inwardly by the Spirit, outwardly by the Word. By his Spirit illuminating their minds and training their hearts to practice of righteousness, he makes them new creatures, while by his Word he stimulates them to long and seek for this renovation. The Word, when addressed to the reprobate, though not effectual for regeneration, urges their conscience and will render them more inexcusable on the day of judgment. There it is, from Calvin. Inward, efficient cause of regeneration, the Holy Spirit doing a work directly upon the soul. Outward, instrumental cause through the external word preached. Okay, Francis Turretin. He expounds upon Calvin's definition. Turretin says this, quote, although the Spirit is effectual calling, does not act without the word, still he does not act only immediately through the word, but he also acts immediately with the word on the soul, so that the calling necessarily produces its effect. It is evident that the word ought necessarily concur with the spirit for our conversion, but whatever may be its efficacy, still it is not sufficient without the immediate operation of the spirit, nor can the word ever produce that effect unless the secret ineffable and supernatural operation of the Spirit attends to affect the soul immediately and turn it by its omnipotent power. That's a complex, thorough definition from Francis Turretin on the need for the external preaching of the Word, which is alone not sufficient. It's the instrumental cause, but the, there needs to be the internal efficient cause of the Holy Spirit directly on the soul. He also says this, Turretin, The Holy Spirit works in two ways, both in the word and in the heart. In the word as the objective cause, in the heart as the efficient cause of faith. In word, acting outwardly by the revelation of preaching and persuasion. In the heart, working efficaciously and supernaturally by an infusion of faith, the creation of a new heart, and the powerful impression to trust Christ. You may not be familiar with Theodore Vandergroe, Theodore Vandergroe was a Dutch theologian in the 1700s who wrote a commentary or an exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the three forms of unity of the, of the Dutch Reformed Church, a great catechism with question and answers. And question 65 deals with faith and, and effectual calling and the nature of faith. Uh, question 65, since we are made partakers of Christ 
and all his benefits by faith alone, where does this faith proceed? In other words, the question is, where does this faith come from? If we're saved by faith alone, where did the faith come from? Did we generate the faith? Is faith a gift? Where does the faith come from? So the, the Heidelberg Catechism answers it in question 60, or in answer 66. Here's the answer. From the Holy Spirit, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. Okay, you see both causes there. A direct work upon the heart and through the preaching of the gospel. So listen to his commentary, his exposition. Quote, The mere external presentation of the gospel is by no means efficacious, for of itself and apart from the efficacious operations of the Spirit, it cannot bring forth faith. However, the Pelagians teach otherwise. Beloved, were it possible to hear this precious gospel of God's grace and salvation proclaimed to us most clearly and powerfully for a thousand years, and we were able with our natural intellect to understand and comprehend its verbal presentation, we nevertheless would not embrace this gospel by faith unto salvation unless we were wrought upon inwardly by the Holy Spirit and in an efficacious manner and able to do so. Without this, we would merely hear and intellectually understand the gospel as a general truth, but by no means would we believe it with our hearts unto salvation. There is the direct opposite view of provisionism stated in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, what does Herman Bavink say about this? This distinction between the word and the spirit in regeneration. Bavink says, quote, the external proclaim word addresses human consciousness convincingly. Human response requires an inner work of the Holy Spirit. In Reformed thought, calling and regeneration are never separate. Against the Pelagians, the Reformers took the position that the external call and moral suasion by the word is insufficient for salvation and has to be followed by a special operation of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. Now, when these guys sometimes label their opponents Pelagians, I think sometimes they, they lump in semi-Pelagians in there. They don't, they don't make quite a distinction. But as we've seen what the semi-Pelagians believe, they're accurate in their, in their description against the semi-Pelagians, even though they don't necessarily name them. And they're actually speaking against what provisionists believe. Okay, Sinclair Ferguson, modern-day Scottish pastor, theologian, has written a wonderful book on the Holy Spirit. He writes this, quote, Since the Spirit's work in regeneration involves the transformation of the whole man, including his cognitive and affective powers, the accompanying of the internal illumination of the Spirit by external revelation of the Word is altogether appropriate. Regeneration and the faith to which it gives birth are seen as taking place not by revelation-less divine sovereignty, but within the matrix of the preaching of the Word and the witness of the people of God. Their instrumentality in regeneration does not impinge upon the sovereign activity of the Spirit. Word and Spirit belong together. In other words, he says there needs to be the external preaching of the Word of God, but there also needs to be an inward illumination, regeneration by the Holy Spirit to actually transform the whole person through regeneration. And then Chad Van Dixhorn, he's written a modern-day commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, so he's a Presbyterian. But again, the Westminster 
is exactly the same pretty much as the Second London Baptist Confession on this issue of effectual calling and regeneration. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn says this, quote, God does not use the word alone, for these truths are complementary or complementary. The Spirit uses the word, and no amount of exposure to the word of God, direct or indirect, will prove useful unless God writes his word on our hearts by his good spirit. So Leighton argues provisionists believe in a supernatural work of provenient grace. What is this supernatural work of provenient grace? Well, it's the grace, the supernatural working of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's supernatural. The inspiration of the scripture, supernatural process. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers who proclaim the gospel, that's supernatural. And these three things which comprise the sharing of the gospel appeal are supernatural, prevenient, and necessary for a sinner to come to faith in Christ. Nevertheless, this is where provisionism departs from both Calvinism, classic Arminianism, and Lutheranism. Again, Leighton argues that they do not believe in a direct work of the Spirit which ontologically changes the nature of a sinner to give them a new heart. Again, we have some problems with ontological nature there. And so this provisionist view that I've demonstrated is at the heart of semi-Pelagian theology. So how do provisionism and semi-Pelagian, where do they link arms historically? Well, both do not make a distinction between the external call and the internal effectual call. Provisionism does not clearly define what happens in regeneration. I haven't heard a good explanation from Leighton. What actually happens in regeneration? Provisionism denies total inability, denies spiritual deadness, the same way the semi-Pelagians did. And and this is the big one. Semi-Pelagians and provisionists do not make a distinction between the instrumental, external word, cause of regeneration, and the efficient internal effectual cause of regeneration the holy spirit so here's my conclusion because provisionism is not rooted in a deep confessional historical foundation it's fairly new it's related to traditional southern baptist theology it's a hodgepodge of carl bart and herschel hobbs and southern baptist theology for the past few years and corporate election and and all these things it's confusing it's confusing It lacks proper theological categories. It does not hold to any historic confessional standards. And basically, without splitting hairs, it comes very close to how semi-Pelagianism has been defined historically. But above all, it does not hold up exegetically to what the Bible teaches about the nature of regeneration and effectual calling, and the deadness of the human heart. So therefore, it should be rejected as a theological system. Again, we're not trying to be mean here. We're not trying to say that everything they teach is wrong. But their definition of grace, limiting it to the external instrumental means of the preached gospel appeal, falls outside of Reformed theology, classic Arminian theology, Lutheran theology, and is in more in line with semi-Pelagian theology, and they should just own it and say, this is what we believe. I know this has been a deep dive into these issues, but I think it's important to see 
how these issues stack up historically, exegetically. And so I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Thank you for being a listener. Give us a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Share this on your social media platforms. Get the word out. I have been getting a lot of um, correspondence from some of you with questions. And so I'd love for you to keep emailing me. You can go to seancole.net to find out all my contact information. Well, until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.